Please do uh, keep your Bibles open at John 17. Andrew and Helen, thanks very much for those readings. Well, good morning. Um, for those of you who may be new or visiting, my name is Jitesh. I am the associate vicar here. Great pleasure to be here amongst God's people. I too have just come from Muddy Field for a week and uh, enjoying being in the company of other Christians. But actually, there's something special about coming home and being with you all, just looking around. And so just to say, it's so wonderful to be back and to be here this Sunday morning. And we're carrying on, as Mike said, a series looking at John 17, the great prayer of Jesus, what's often been called the high priestly prayer of his prayer for his disciples and for all of us through them on the eve of his arrest and crucifixion. Before we dig into it, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that we might be given understanding in it today. Would you cleanse our hearts and our minds? Would you give us a spirit of understanding? Take away any distractions and speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. Amen. Amen. Well, before we uh, dig into the great prayer of Jesus, I just want to highlight that just as Jesus prayed 2,000 years ago for his disciples, Jesus prays for you today. And John 17 reveals the heart of Jesus and the content, perhaps, of those prayers. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus lives to make intercession for us. We don't know what that looks like or what that means, but... He is there at the right-hand side of the Father, always interceding for us, for you and me. And this is of great comfort because sometimes you might feel that no one in the world is praying for you. I often am surprised when I hear that someone's praying for me. It's a wonderful thing. But sometimes you might think, does anyone care enough to pray for me? And let me tell you, it might be that you find that no one's praying for you, but Jesus is. He's interceding for you. And John 17 reveals some of the things, I think, that he is praying for us right now. We saw last week what the first thing is, that he's praying that he would be glorified in all things, and that is right and proper and true. He deserves all the glory in all things. But now, actually, we come to his second petition, and he turns his prayer to the disciples around him and through them to us as well. And the second petition is found in the middle of verse 11. Have a look at it. It says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me. Now, the NIV, the nearly infallible version, is um, unfortunately slightly fallible here. Um, the translation isn't the best from the Greek here. Looking at it over the past few days, I think the better one perhaps is, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name that you gave to me. Both synonymous in one sense, but that idea of being kept in Jesus' name, which is the Father's as well. And first question, of course, is what is that name? What is the name that's been spoken about there? Well, let me suggest that it is that greatest name of revelation of God from the Old Testament, Yahweh, the great I Am. 
Because we know in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses that name as well. He says, I am the light of the world. He says, I am the way, the truth, and I am the good shepherd. Seven times he uses I am as his name as well, the name of the Father given to him. And so to be kept in that name, as Jesus prays, is to be kept in the fullness of that revelation of God through Christ, to be kept in Christ, to be kept close to Jesus and who he is and what he has said. And this is Jesus's first prayer for his disciples, that they might be kept faithful to him, that they might be kept in his name. Some of you will know that the uh, motto of the United States Marine Corps are two words, Semper Fidelis, or often shortened by them to Semper Fi, used with a lot of bravado as their motto. And it simply means always faithful. And this is what Jesus is praying, that they would be always faithful, not to an institution or an organization as a motto, but to a person, the person of course, that they would be kept faithful to him. And this is in the context of many who aren't, many who don't stay faithful to him. He mentions in verse 12 the example of the one who was doomed to destruction, Judas, who wasn't faithful to Christ, who fell away, who betrayed Christ that very evening. Slightly less severe, but there are other examples in the New Testament of those who didn't stay the course, whose hearts grew cold, who betrayed Christ in their affections. And even known to some of us, we'll know people who once were following hard after Christ, running the race with passion, but now they're nowhere to be seen. Now they've been overtaken by other things and they've fallen away. And Jesus is praying that these things would not happen. He's praying that they would not happen to you. It's what used to be called backsliding, that slow but sure sliding away, away from Christ into other things. So easy, so gradual, but leads so far from Christ. C.S. Lewis on this says this, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? Sadly, some of us will know people who have just slid away, they've drifted away, who haven't kept faithful, who haven't run the course of the path set before them. And this is Jesus' first priority in prayer for us. Not for our families, not for our future or our finances, but for our faithfulness to him. And from the passage, let me suggest three reasons why this is so much on his heart. Firstly, he prays for our faithfulness because there are troubles ahead. There are troubles ahead. The context of John 17 is the last verse of John 16, where at the end of the Last Supper discourse, two hours or three hours of teaching on the eve of crucifixion, he says this, I've told you these things 
so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, Jesus has been teaching them about how in the future they will have trouble. He's trying to equip them. He's trying to encourage them and give them hope. He's come to the end of his ability to teach them, and so now he prays for them in light of what troubles are to come. And you might ask, well, what are these troubles? Well, we know first and foremost, almost immediately, the troubles will be over the next two days. Jesus' arrest, his flogging, his crucifixion, that would trouble greatly the disciples, that would lead them into despair and despond, that could so easily cause them to run away from faithfulness and back to their old way of living. We know more generally, Jesus predicted in John 14, 15, and 16 that they're going to be persecuted, that it is coming. If they were going to do it to Christ and they'd see it to its fullness that evening, that they were going to experience it themselves. And we know from historical accounts that all but one of these 11 disciples around Jesus at this moment were martyred for their faith. They, they in the end, died because of what they believed. It happened. And even with the one that wasn't martyred, they tried. Accounts record, we're not sure how accurate they are, but accounts record that the Apostle John, they threw into a vat of boiling oil to try and kill him, and miraculously he escaped. But severe persecution was going to come. Persecution that could so easily take them out of the race and stop them following Christ. Repeatedly in our passage, Jesus speaks about the fact that the world is present and that they've been taken out of the world and into the kingdom of God. And that's going to cause trouble. That they're no longer living in the world's ways. They're living counterculturally. That they're living for Christ instead. And that's going to cause a lot of friction that we're swimming against the current. There's going to be lots of problems ahead in the warp and woof of their life from now on. They're going to have trouble. At the end of our passage, he highlights the main troublemaker, Satan, the enemy, who hates Christ and therefore hates his people who love him. And he's going to cause trouble as well, his ability to tempt and destroy. All these things were going to come. And Jesus prays that they'd be kept faithful through them. And the fundamental truth is that becoming a Christian is a wonderful thing. It's the, most, it's the best decision you could ever make. But it isn't going to decrease troubles in life. In fact, it's going to increase them. It's going to increase them. There's no doubt about it. On top of the general troubles in life. There are specific troubles that come only to Christians that you're going to encounter. The power of culture trying to take you with it, and you have to swim against it, and it leads to great trouble. The jeering and the opposition of those around you, whether out loud or behind closed doors, that's going to cause trouble. The enemy who hates you, He's going to try and cause trouble. All these things are going to come. Trouble's going to come. And Jesus prays you would stay faithful through them. Jesus predicts in Matthew 21, in the last days, because of these things, 
the love of many will grow cold, that the fire will go out, that hearts will be turned to stone, and many will fall away from him. And may that not be us. May that not be this church. Firstly, I know to my sadness, nearly every year of ministry, I hear of one of the people that I trained with for ministry falling away from Christ. That they were in ministry, passionately running in Christ's purposes, but the attrition of it all, the temptation of the world and the power of the enemy, just not only taking them out of ministry, but out of Christian faith. They've just fallen away. And applying this personally, none of us here are to think that this could not happen to us. In our first reading, we heard Paul say that if anyone thinks they stand, let them be aware lest they fall. That if you think your devotion is strong enough, your faithfulness over the years has been committed enough, that your worship is passionate enough, that you will not fall away from Christ, well, you may be deceiving yourself. Be aware. It's not you that's able to do it. I don't say these things to make you afraid. Jesus doesn't pray this out of fear to make his disciples afraid. He simply wants our eyes open to the possibility that we might seek God as Christ does on our behalf, that we might be kept faithful. We know that Judas had the privilege of three years of one-on-one -on -one walk with Christ. A privilege like none other. Who here wouldn't have given everything to trade places with Judas to be able to spend those three years with Christ on earth? I know I would. And yet he fell away. And if it could happen to him, it could happen to us. And we need to pray. One of our primary prayer burdens for ourselves should be, Lord, keep me faithful to you. Whatever comes my way, keep me faithful, walking with you. Our namesake apostle, the Apostle Jude, says in his closing benediction, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you before his glorious presence, blameless and with great joy, to him who's able to do it. We can't do it, but we can ask God because he is able to do it, to keep us from stumbling. And this should be our prayer for others around us, for loved ones. Our first prayer before anything else ought to be, Lord, keep them faithful to you. Keep them faithful to you. For leaders in various positions, Lord, keep them faithful for, to you that they would not stumble. For those who are new to the faith, Lord, keep them faithful to you lest they be taken out before the race even begins. There's lots of trouble ahead, but Lord, keep them faithful. Well, that's the first reason Jesus prays this. The second reason is Jesus prays for our faithfulness because we're precious to him. In our passage, there's a deep theological truth that's being revealed that comes in Scripture and other places, that we, every single one of us, have been given by the Father to Jesus the Son as his disciples. So first and foremost, we belong to the Father, and the Father gives us to the Son. Look at verse 6. Jesus prays, 
I've revealed you to those whom you gave out, gave me out of the world. Verse 9, I'm not praying for the world, but to those you have given to me. Verse 10, all I have is yours, and all you have is mine. It's this deep mystery that the Father gives us to Jesus as his precious possession. That salvation is both through him and in the end to, to him as well. And that's why he prays for us to be kept faithful to him. Because we belong to him. We're his reward. That we're precious and his. We know that this was as predicted in the Old Testament. Psalm 2, the Lord says, Ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance to the Son. He says that in the end the nations will be given to you, Jesus as your inheritance. In the book of Revelation, the picture of the church is of the bride of Christ that one day will be fully given to him. And Jesus waits for that day. The great motto of the Moravian church of the 18th century who sent missionaries across the world sparking revival, including here, was, may the lamb that was slain receive the full reward of his sufferings, that we're Christ's reward for his sufferings, that we're given to him as his prize. We're given because we're the reason he did it in the first place. The joy set before him was us as his. And that's why he's praying we'd be kept faithful because we're his. We're precious to him, his reward. Many of us will know from our own experience how zealously we keep and guard that which is preciously given to us. For many parents in the room, it will be your children. How close you seek to keep them close to you, to give them freedom, yes, but they're precious to you. And you want to guard and keep them, therefore. For others, it will be other people. But all of us know these things, and Christ, even more so, knows how precious we are to him and longs to keep us close to him. And he's praying that we would. Even from ordinary day-to-day life, we know what it is to guard jealously the things we've been given. I'm not um, very good at... You know, this is a living example. I've lost what I was about to show you what I have never lost. (laughs) Oh dear. Well, this says it all, doesn't it, Mike? Have I lost it? What I was going to say is that I'm not very good at keeping things safe and not losing things. (laughs) And it has been lost. What I was about to show you, wonderfully, and I think it's in my bag, therefore, I hope, can you, can you find it, Mike? Try my cassock. Is it there? Yes, it is. Hurrah. Okay, thank you. <laughs> what I was going to show you, because I'm useless at keeping things close to me and not losing them, but there's one thing that I've never lost over the years, and it's this. On my 21st birthday, I was given by my parents this pen. It's the Parker Dewarfold fountain pen, handmade with a gold and platinum lip. It's one of the best fountain pens in the world. And let me tell you, over the years, I've lost many Bic Byros. 
I've lost many felt-tip pens and highlighters, and I've nearly lost this today. <laughs> but I have not. But I have not because of how precious it is to me. And if we can do this with simple inanimate objects, think about how precious you are to Christ and how much he wants you not to be lost. Think about how zealously he guards you and wants to keep you close to him. And I want to say this especially to those who statistically I know will be on the edge of the Christian faith, perhaps tempted to give up on it, in fact. That it's too hard to maintain that the pull of other desires and worldly attractions is too great. I want you to hear that you are precious to Jesus. He values you like no one else ever will. And he longs for you to be kept close to him. And he's fighting prayer right now that you will not fall away. He's fighting for you. And I want you to hear that, and I want you to be the answer to that prayer of his, that you would choose to stay faithful to him. You're his reward. You're his prized possession. He values you. Stay faithful to him. Well, that's the second reason he prays for this faithfulness, because we're precious to him. Thank you, Mike. Set the last reason Jesus prays for our faithfulness is because he's returned to the Father. Going back to verse 11, Jesus prefaces his petition saying, I will remain in this world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. And then after the petition in verse 12, he says, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. You see, Jesus' mission is now complete. He's about to be glorified at the cross and return to ultimate glory with the Father. But despite this glory that's to come, he's painfully aware that he's leaving the disciples by themselves. He's kept them safe while he's been with them, but now he's left them and he's praying for them, Lord, keep them. I'm no longer going to be with them, but keep them in your name. And many of us will know what it's like to leave a loved one for the first time and long for them to be kept and protected. For example, leaving a child at school for the very first time. How does that feel? Dropping off a teenager to university to fend for themselves. How does that feel? Not to be sexist, but fathers giving away daughters at weddings trusting another man to lovingly protect as much as you have. How does that feel? But all these are just drops in the bucket compared to what Jesus feels for his disciples, compelling him to pray, Lord, keep them, keep them. While I'm not going to be with you anymore, Lord, please keep them in your name. And I want to end with the question, was Jesus' prayer answered here? Was it answered? And I want to say, yes, it was. I think every prayer of Jesus has been answered or will be ultimately answered. And let me suggest two ways that the Father answers this prayer of Jesus for us. Firstly, he answers it by the sending of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John, 15, John 14, sorry, 
I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you, the Spirit of truth. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That though Jesus has physically left the face of the planet, he is still Emmanuel, God who is with us. And he sends his Spirit, his very presence, to live in us and transform us from the inside out. The power of the Holy Spirit to guard, to guide, to protect, to keep us faithful to Christ. Paul says to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 verse 14, Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. That God has done some amazing things in our lives, a good deposit of salvation, of works, of transformation, of calling and purpose. And how do we guard those things? How do we stay faithful? With the help of the Holy Spirit. And one of our key prayers should be, not just for the signs and wonders and the miracles that we might expect through the work of the Spirit, or the Spirit's voice preaching to us through His Word, but also His work to keep us close to Christ, to warm our heart to him, to open our eyes to see how glorious he is. This is his primary function, to always point us towards Jesus. And we're to ask, Holy Spirit of God, give me that power to stay close to Christ. Let me see him. Let me hear his voice. Let me be raptured with love for him again and again. We're to pray for these things. And then secondly, I think this prayer was answered through Jesus' very real and physical presence through his body. The New Testament repeatedly describes the fact that even though he isn't physically present, at the same time he is through his body, which is the church, the body of Christ, that you and I are his physical presence. Crazy to think. Look around. (laughs) You and I, we're the body of Christ. We're his physical presence here on earth. We can stretch the image too far, I'm aware, but these things are said for a reason. And the key way, I think, that God seeks to keep us faithful to Christ is to do it together as one body. This is why Jesus in verse 12, uh, verse 11, ends the petition by saying, so that they may be one as we are one. That old adage, united we stand divided, we fall, is so true. That's why as pastors, myself and Mike and Adam and others, are so concerned when we notice people dropping out of fellowship and not turning up. It's not because of drop in mission statistics or the pride of the church. It's not because of that. It's because it's dangerous that by yourself you cannot do the Christian faith. You'll be picked off by the enemy. You need to do it with others. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, let us not give up meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. I know from personal experience, I need sometimes other people to encourage me in the Christian faith when I'm going through struggles. I just need it. can't do it by myself. And I also know that at some point they're going to need me when they're going through similar troubles and struggles. We do these things together. 
The image that's often used is of a log fire. Take a log out of a pile of logs in a log fire and it quickly extinguishes itself. But it put it back in the fire and guess what? It reignites. It reignites. And I'm aware of the irony of saying this to you all because you're here at church on a Sunday and so this doesn't necessarily apply to you. But I want to end by saying do you pray like Jesus does for those perhaps whom you have noticed are struggling? Have you noticed people who are dropping out of fellowship? Have you noticed on a Sunday who isn't here? Have you noticed those who perhaps once were passionately following after Christ and yet you just haven't seen them for a while? You haven't heard from them for a while? What's going on? We, with our physical bodies, would certainly notice if a bit of it went missing. If we suddenly lost a finger or even something as small as a toenail, we would notice, wouldn't we? It would hurt. Well, the same should be true of us here. We should notice it should hurt. And with Christ, we ought to fight in prayer for them. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? I think we should pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much for your word. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you'd apply these things to our lives. And Lord, first and foremost, we pray that we would be kept faithful. Lord, we can't do this in our own strength, through the troubles to come, through all that might afflict us. Keep us close to you. Empower us by your spirit. Keep us in our oneness with each other. Help us to stay the course. Lord, thank you that we're your precious prize, your reward. Help us to see that. And we pray for others who are precious to you. We pray for those who perhaps are falling away, even now. Lord, bring them back. By your power, bring them back to yourself. By your own zeal, by your own abilities and unction and anointing, bring them back, we pray, that they might be fervent in their walk with you again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.